Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. I've got a double feature today. First, we'll hear from Eric Haas, director of the first Virginia Queer Film Festival. Then... The Lionfish. Along the Atlantic coast, they've gone from population zero to top predator in mere decades. That was an excerpt from Ocean Invaders, a documentary about the invasive lionfish and the harm it's doing to our waters. It was broadcast in October on PBS's Nova series, and it shows tonight, June 14th, at Maymont. It was also nominated for Best Documentary Script in 2023 by the Writers Guild of America, the only nature and science film nominated. I'll meet Jeff Bodecker, the documentary's writer-producer-director, and Nicholas Donnelly, the director of photography. We'll talk about the challenges of this and other documentaries they've created, plus Jeff gives us his take on the writer's strike. Sifter, review of the week. Reality on Max. Reality winner was an American intelligence specialist. She came home from the grocery store one day to find FBI agents waiting to search her house and interview her about leaked documents detailing Russia's interference in our elections. This recreation of the encounter is played out verbatim from the FBI recordings. It's a fascinating experience, watching how the agents converse to gain her trust and uncover the truth. Writer-director Tina Satter adapted her play to the screen, adding some additional moments of graphics and other visuals. Basically, this is two people interviewing one person in a minimal setting, but the tension holds steady without ever going big. As reality, Sidney Sweeney's performance is nuanced, quietly emotional, and completely enthralling. This political drama creates stress through smartly underplayed performances and the compelling truth behind this reality. I gave reality four out of five stars. I'm talking with Eric Haas, the festival director of the Virginia Queer Film Festival. So, Eric, how did you decide you wanted to start a queer film festival? Well, I am the publisher of the LGBTQ magazine, Outlife 757, here in Hampton Roads. And I've always been a queer activist, probably since the day I came out of the womb. <laughs> uh, okay. And I have a friend in L.A., his name is David McFarland, who's a filmmaker and a pretty successful one, a documentarian. And he graduated from ODU, and um, he and I were just talking one day, and he had a documentary coming out called Alone in the Game. Uh, it's about queer athletes and the struggles they face in, on the collegiate professional level. And I said, David, we need to do a queer film festival here in Hampton Roads. It'd be just one more addition to the number of LGBTQ events and organizations that are really making Hampton Roads a very progressive and desirable community for, for queer people. And I had never done anything like that before, but uh, I've always been a firm believer in that you don't have to know everything as long as you know other people who know what you don't. And uh -huh. so <laughs> I found those people and they found me and we have a, an incredible board of filmmakers running the gamut from young people um, and uh, people of color. We became a nonprofit in November of last year. And here we are with money in the bank to produce this queer film festival and then do some other educational components of queer film around, around the year. Oh, so cool. that's our goal. Okay. We're going to be active during the course of the year. This is our centerpiece event, but we're going to be producing programming for the community even beyond that. Great, great. Now, I know, and I prefer myself, say queer as opposed to gay or lesbian, but why did you 
choose the word queer as opposed to LGBTQIA, which nobody likes to say. <laughs> well, so, okay. So first of all, the acronym. It's just a mess. Too much. Yeah. Also, you and I grew up in a time when queer was a slur. That's I was right. Of that. We're both in our sixties or whatever. Sixties with shipping and handling. <laughs> right. And tax. Don't forget that. That's actually a Leslie Jordan line. <laughs> I love that. And so I just started hearing younger people taking that word back. And I thought, well, man, that just says it all, doesn't it? I mean, it it covers every letter in that acronym because that's what we were called as a group. You didn't have to be gay or or identify as a lesbian. There were uh, the transgender community was completely invisible when we were kids. but But those people were probably called queer as well because they were different. They were queer. And it's that sort of American thing where we demean the other that I want to combat against. I'll tell you, honestly, it's really interesting to me here in Hampton Roads, the dichotomy between the seven cities. So Norfolk is very progressive. Um, It's sort of the center of the queer community in a lot of ways in terms of events that are happening and, and things for the community. But you got to Virginia Beach and it's very conservative out there. And when we went out to do some fundraising in Virginia Beach, we got that question a lot from possible donors. Well, isn't that a bad term for the LGBTQ plus community? And we were like, let me explain it to you. (laughs) (laughs) So what exactly is going to be going on at this festival? Obviously, you're going to be showing some movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're not showing wide release commercial films. That'll come later in the year. But we wanted to shine the light on the creative efforts of queer filmmakers or films that have a queer theme. So we went on this website called Film Freeway. Footnote. Film Freeway is a website for filmmakers to submit their films to hundreds of festivals all over the world. And we got, I think, close, I want to say close to 70 submissions. And out of that, we curated 21. And they range from shorts, animated, to full-length documentaries. And uh, it'll take place three days. Our opening day is next week, June 14th. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, (laughs) And then we close up on Friday night and um, it'll all be over at Old Dominion University and their university theater, which is a top notch, very professional screening, 280 seat capacity theater. So we're really excited to have partnerships with ODU, too, to make this happen. There'll be a link on the webpage for TV Jerry that people can uh, contact if they want to make a little trip from Richmond or if any listeners down there want to do it. But just in case anybody wants to look and not look on the page, it's vaqff.org. Stands That's for- correct. Virginia Queer Film Festival.org. V-A-Q-F-F. Another acronym. Yay! There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I want to thank you very much. This has been lots of fun and wish you good luck with the festival. Thank you. That was Eric Haas, director of the first Virginia Queer Film Festival, which starts tonight and runs through Friday at Old Dominion University. There's a link on the webpage for this show. Now let's dive under the ocean for Ocean Invaders. I'm joined today with two of the people who were involved in creating that movie that you just heard from. Jeff Boddicker, who is the writer, producer, director, and Nick or Nicholas Donnelly, who was the DP for it. Y'all welcome to Sifter. Thanks. Great to be on. Thank you. So first of all, what is Orange Frame Productions? So we're a production company. We're based here in uh, in Richmond, Virginia. We produce for um, 
TV, streaming a lot of the bigger brands like PBS, National Geographic, also National Park Service. And then we also do um, immersive media experiences with uh, museums and uh, help with uh, multimedia on the museum side of our business. Great, great. And how did you get started in this? Our roots are back in television productions, working with Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, uh, through a third-party production company. One thing led to another, and then through the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, we sold a uh, film for their theater, and uh, it required me to move down to Richmond for six months. And I knew nothing about Virginia. I was um, up in New York and we ended up loving it here. You know, we got immersed right. for six months, but then we didn't want to leave. So I started the company and um, and it went from there. How did you get started in doing television, video production, directing in the first place? You know, my first job out of college, I taught English abroad in Russia. And uh, one thing led to another. I knew I wanted to come back and I wanted to teach English forever, not in Russia. Applied to grad schools. And then one thing led to another. And I went to the BU's film program. Right before I graduated, then, uh, since I speak Russian, uh, there was a Discovery Channel show that the showrunner needed somebody to go over as associate producer with the producer to Siberia on a shoot. I said, yeah, that sounds like an adventure. That sounds fun. I don't know if fun's the right word when you're talking about Siberia, but... <laughs> in, yeah, in February. Oh, wow. No, it was actually one of the hardest shoots I've ever done, and still is. You know, it was the first one, at least professionally. And Nick, how about you? How did you get started in the business? So my background is in fine arts, and I was studying at the Corcoran College of Art in D.C., in my senior year, I got a message from a friend um, at like 11 o'clock at night that said, would you be interested in doing an internship at National Geographic? And I got hired from my internship at Nat Geo and have been there ever since really working on the in-house productions. So obviously, Jeff, you and Nick have worked together a lot, and I'm assuming you're going to continue working together. Is he kind of your number one DP now, Jeff? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. We're brothers. Oh, great. So how did you meet? What was your first shoot like? I mean, it must have been 13 years ago now, but uh, we were both working at National Geographic. He was in the D.C. office. I was in the New York office. We were assigned a, a show called Brain Games. It's a neuroscience show. And we had a list of B-roll. Footnote. B-roll is industry terminology for footage that's supplemental to the main shot. And we met each other for the first time. One of them was recreating the old Moybridge experiment, which was, you know, showing that horses. It was one of the first uh, oh, right, films right. where it shows a horse like actually leaves the ground. Footnote. Edward Moybridge was an English photographer known for his pioneering work in studying motion. And the galloping horses are one of his most famous. So we had Nick knew how to use the Phantom, which was a, it's a high frame rate camera. And at that time, specifically, it was um, a very rare and challenging camera to use. So we we're at Santa Anita uh, race racetrack in California. And it was kind of cool that, you know, our first shoot together was also, you know, uh, had its deep roots in cinema as well with, with Moybridge. And we filmed it and it's incredible, still incredible footage it holds up today. Nick, what do you remember about Jeff? Was you, were you like, okay, this director, he's going to be worth working with. So my memories of that day were running around the coast of California and hitting all these different locations, including like a ballerina studio, a jazz bar. The last shot of the list was get some waves crashing on the beach at sunset. If we would drive any further, the sun, we would miss it. So we only had one option and we parked the van in an illegal spot off the side of the road and it was a sheer cliff face going straight down. On the oh, side. wow. How many feet do you think it was to the bottom? I mean, it's classic, you know, California coast cliff. Yeah. And I said, we're, we're not going to get it unless we jump, jump. down. 
slide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Cine Saddle. Footnote. A Cine Saddle is like a specialized bean bag that's used to hold a camera when a tripod isn't available. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to slide down the hill on, on beanbag and get the camera set up and you come down behind me. And we just basically tumbled down this sheer embankment to the beach, rolled on just in time and had that, there was no time for a tripod. It was went right on the Sydney saddle, grabbed those shots. And as we were saving the last clip, you know, the sunset over the horizon. And I think we probably gave each other a high five and, you Spent know, the rest of the night trying to get back up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Climbed back up the, the hill and found the van. And that's how our, Friendship was born. Wow, cool. Surprise guest drop in. Welcome, Krista Weatherford. Hello, how are you? Footnote. Krista Weatherford is the Director of Programming and Community Engagement for the Maymont Foundation. And as you know, we've got Jeff and Nick here to talk about Ocean Invaders. So what prompted Maymont to say, we want to show this movie? Maymont has uh, over 300 animals here and... Our environmental education team is very robust, and, and we do a lot of educational programs around species that are invading our spaces, as well as those that are on the protected through endangered spectrum. Of course, Maimon is located on the James River, and so uh, a lot of our interpretive exhibits and information, our education programs are centered around the James River but as a watershed, we lead right into the Chesapeake Bay and into the Atlantic Ocean. And so we felt like this was very much still on brand for us to talk about these species that are invading our spaces. Do you know, are they in the James River, the lionfish? No, but VIMS, Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences, has actually caught some off the coast of Virginia. So um, we really feel like this is still a very much connected story with the greater habitat stresses and things like that in our area. Absolutely. Makes sense. And Jeff and Nick will both be there to answer questions if they don't answer all the questions on here. So exactly. I'll put the uh, information on the webpage for this too. And I want to thank you again, Krista, for dropping in and uh, give them a little insight on how this is going to play out. The Nature Center will be open from 5 to 6.30, and so anyone is more than welcome to come and have those extended hours. The screening is free, and it will start at 6.30. I believe it's approximately an hour long, and right. then afterwards, everyone will have an opportunity to ask questions to our guests. Great. Well, thank you so much for dropping in, and I hope you have a good crowd, and I hope they learn something about these lionfish. They're pretty scary. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, let me ask you this, Nick. Let me back up and ask you this. I read that you're not only a DP and you have been literally all over the world from Mexico to Greenland, but you're also a pilot? Yeah. When drones first started to kind of hit the scene, in order to fly a drone commercially, you one path of doing it was to have a regular pilot certificate. Wow. You know, drones have really changed things a lot because Nick and I were going up in hot air balloons to uh, really? get wow. shots. That was some pretty... Uh, risky, dangerous moments. Oh, yeah. I, recall. I, I don't think I'll ever get in a hot air balloon again, actually, after those experiences. I've never been in one, but you know how it is when you're young and stupid. I can remember one time when I was working for Richmond Public Schools, this was in the 80s, and we needed to get some footage of the city skyline. And I remember myself 
hanging out the window of the helicopter. I was strapped, but I was hanging out with the camera shooting. I would never do that today, but yeah, it's, it's kind of scary doing that stuff. And you know, the worst part is, and I'm sure you know this, both of you, when you're looking through the lens, you don't see all the danger around you because all you see is the picture in front of you and you're like, you could fall and die and you wouldn't even know it until it's too late. Absolutely. Well, on that bright note, let's talk a little bit about Ocean Invaders. It's about the lionfish. So were you just called up by Novin PBS to do this or did y'all present it to them or how did the project come about? Yeah, no, we presented it to them. So it actually has its roots from uh, another project that we were filming shipwrecks underwater for in Florida. And there was lionfish, didn't know anything about them. You know, upon further questioning and research, uh, it unpacked this really kind of big story about how this fish was non-existent, you know, in the 80s in the Atlantic. And now it's spread all the way from Maine down to Brazil. And, um, you know, it's kind of remarkable how a species can just take off like that and wreak so much havoc. And really, it, you know, it's not that the lionfish is this bad creature. It's just that it, it's bad because of where it is. We thought shining a light, you know, on it and following the story would be really uh, informative, but a great adventure and trying to solve a great mystery. Obviously, you wrote it, produced it and shot some of it. And you got a nomination from the Writers Guild of America for the movie, for writing it. And... There's a lot of voiceover by one person. Did you actually write that voiceover, even though it's it's somebody's point of view? Yes, I wrote the voiceover. And then I'm the one, I do the interviews, so I, I have the, the loose structure in mind. I don't know where the interviews necessarily are going to go, right. um, but um, I have some story points I'm try, trying to hit, and um, hopefully there's some serendipity, you know, along the way. And then what it becomes in post-production is a, a mountain of transcripts, you know, from those interviews. Sure. And then it becomes a matter of piecing together. You know, you, you want to keep it interesting. You don't want to have one person talking for very long. You want to have different perspectives interjecting, right. you know. So that's where the kind of art of taking these transcripts and then what's, you know, we call a paper cut, which is all on paper. You know, finding those sound bites, seeing how they, they sometimes don't work at all, you know, when you actually put them in the edit, but at least on paper, they seem to work. And then from there, we build out the voiceover to fill in the gaps and also just, you know, it can be lengthy explanations and we can cut down on that with the voiceover. Well, I did not realize that you'd started with a paper cut because I have one client that I used to work for in Richmond who always did paper cuts. And I said, you know, I could do it faster in the, in the, Editor, I could do this thing and you'd know if it's going to work because, as you just mentioned, sometimes it looks great on paper, but when you hear it, there's a bad inflection or there's something that doesn't, it doesn't work. How often do you find once they conform the paper to the edit that, nope, nope, that didn't work? Yeah, well, I mean, we need a baseline and that's where, that's where it starts. In our interviews, especially if I'm really into it, they can go pretty long, as Nick knows. I mean, Nick's falling asleep. Uh, during interviews of mine, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I've had to like me. nudge him in the shoulder a, a few, quite a few times actually. So I've had dupees do that. <laughs> you know, it's really the only way is to have the transcript is so much quicker. That builds a string out that we then work off of for the rough cut. Sure, sure. Now, Nicholas, what were your challenges on this shoot? One of the bigger challenges for me is always when we're going someplace internationally that. There's really no chance of sourcing or getting anything um, and just making sure that everything's tip top and that we have backups of all the important stuff and packing strategically to kind of reduce the number of cases that we have to take. And just all the preparation work is usually one of the more stressful parts of any shoot for me, especially we, one of the shoots was in carousel and we would have been out of luck if anything would have not been working or functional when we got there. So 
The second biggest challenge was I went down at a submarine several times for six to eight hours with one of the research scientists. And it was a pretty uh, small, tight space. And the dome port on front of the submarine is this massive piece of glass. It causes a lot of distortion. And that was stuff that we really couldn't prepare for because we didn't have a submarine here to do any tests with. But I actually had to be laying down the entire time I was in the sub. Laying down on the job, as it were. Yeah, there was only one seat, and that was for the pilot. And the, the two front passengers had to, were laying down on like these uh, flat kind of, not even beds. They were just these flat spots in the sides of the sub. So it was very uncomfortable. We were down there for a very long time. Did you get some decent footage? The bottom line. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's in the film. It's when all the the robotics of the submarine were kind of. They seemed to me to be a little bit. Uh, challenging for the the guy that was using the particularly the spear and like cocking the spear but so he could uh capture the lionfish right and so there was a lot of time where we were almost getting one but we'd miss and by the time we would get the arrow reloaded in the fish would be long gone i um, think it turned out to be the best part of the whole film yeah that was fun watching it not work yeah right and, and also shows how hard it was to do it right so that was good. yeah as we mentioned earlier, you wrote this and you got a nomination at the uh, Writers Guild Awards in October. How was that? How was the experience of going there and it, being part of that whole thing? It's pretty crazy, actually, because... And where was it, by the way? Yeah, so it was in Manhattan. And, you know, the Writers Guild is... Um, it runs a gamut for who's in there, you know, and Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, you know, people like that are, are there in attendance. And they, you know, they both wrote different scripts that were nominated. Um, there's other famous people like Amy Schumer and the late night host guys. So when you pull up, unlike all the other Sarah award ceremonies, nobody really knows <laughs> writers. I mean, let's course, not, like right. we don't, right? So well, was that was there a step and repeat where you did pose on your way in? Footnote. Step and repeat is the backdrop that usually has logos on it repeating, and people pose in front of it for photographs. Yeah, and there's kind of a funny moment with that. It's just some people, you know, I think really embrace those opportunities. And right. then others like myself, it just like, I, you know, it's just not something I'm used to or and really try to avoid. So, uh, yeah, so I got out there. And then uh, the funny thing is, uh, ever since I was a kid, if I fake smile, my face just starts twitching, like uncontrolled, oh, wow. like in school pictures, you know? <laughs> so like, you know, this was like a wall of cameras, you know, a wall of uh, journalists. And of course, like, I'm, there's no reason to be smiling for me at this moment. So right. fortunately, it's all photographs, so you can't tell. But uh, just like when I was eight years old, you know, my face just starts like twitching, like I got a really bad tick. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. And yeah. sadly, you did not Receive the award. No, no. But I'll have to say, you know, you hear it, it's so trite. They say, oh, it was just an honor to be nominated. When you consider how many hundreds of screenplays are written every year and they break it down to what, five or six, it still is, it is a big honor. So that's very cool. Yeah, thank you. Since you are a writer and since May 2nd, there has been a writer strike. How has it affected you or has it affected you yet? Yeah, as part of the guild, you know, it's a little bit different with the, with the nonfiction work that we do. So, you know, as far as what we're supposed to halt on is our pitches to certain organizations. And right. that's really the the hang up right now is the guild really wants to make sure to grind work to halt and just show the importance of what writers bring, you know, to, um, right. to the production industry. That's mostly how it's affected us is just pausing on certain proposals to certain companies. Oh, so that's good. So it's not affecting you day to day, which is great at this point. 
depending on how long it goes on, I guess. Right. No, we're in post-production on a, on a project. We're okay there. So we talked about that one award. There was also the National Association for Interpretation for our National Park Service. You won an award for that one, Window into the Past, right? Yeah, that's right. That was a film shout out in Hagerman that uh, Nick and I have some pretty fond memories of. That was a brutal shoot, though. You were was... both involved. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Nick, what do you remember about that one? Hagerman's an interesting national park that no one's allowed to visit there. They try to keep the contents of the park a secret. Footnote. It's actually called Hagerman Fossil Beds National Monument and contains the largest concentration of Hagerman horse fossils in North America. I'm not sure why, Jeff. Do you know why they keep it a secret? Uh, there's fossils there that they don't want the general public rummaging around and pocketing and just destroying. Yeah. And so as such, when you get to the park, it's not clear exactly where anything is or what you're doing. All of the fossils and the interesting places to film were very, very far away. And we had to hump everything in on our backs. Um, and it was burning hot those days. Um, there was multiple times I looked over at Jeff and thought he was going to have go into cardiac arrest. <laughs> and when we would be done shooting, there was um, a little like lazy river type stream near a hotel motel that we were staying out of the house. And we would just get into that stream and chill. <laughs> Literally chill. Yeah. Yeah. There's no tree cover there. There's no, it's all sand you're walking in. There's rattlesnakes everywhere. Oh, great. Um, yeah, that fish, that watering hole felt great. I'm sure it did. So what's next for each of you? I know you said you had some proposals. Is there anything definitely on the line at this point? So we've been filming at Shenandoah National Park for the past three or four years now. And now it's in post. It's called Shenandoah. It's a three-part series. First part's about uh, formations. The second episode is migrations. And then the third one is transformations. So we're really excited about about it. Uh, it's it's coming together well. And that's... Um, is that going to be a Nova? Uh, no, it's not. It's, a, okay. it's PBS, not Nova. I just have to mention this. My daughter's name is Shenandoah. Oh, but there we go. There you go. So, <laughs> what a beautiful name, by the way. Thank you. Well, we were hippies. She's the daughter of two hippies. She was conceived in the Shenandoah Valley, so it kind of worked out. So the last question I like to ask everybody on the podcast, so I'm going to ask both of you, when you're not editing or shooting or writing, what are you watching? I have two young daughters, so they influence a lot of the things that I watch and, and you know I guess it's a guilty pleasure that I don't mind uh sitting down and sinking my teeth into uh a binge watching of uh what did we just watch together uh, Frozen Outer Banks uh well, I think we just oh, watched they're a little that. older for for Outer Banks you're right yeah, yeah they're a little bit older and we're currently watching uh Manifest together on Netflix so we they like to watch series that we can kind of just watch five or six episodes and right. yeah I would say just what um, was a huge Game of Thrones fan, you know, that kind of stuff. What did you think of the new one, of the the sequel that uh, HBO put out? I, I loved it. Yeah, you know, I was I was a diehard fan. I know there was a lot of people that that couldn't get into it, but I missed that show so much that it filled in the blank for, for uh, not being around anymore. Jeff, how about you? Well, I just got done reading uh, Planet of the Apes with my my two boys, and so we watched Chimp Empire, which I highly recommend. It's, Is that a uh, documentary? I'm assuming. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, we're not always watching documentaries either, but uh, this one's really good. It's immersive. It's uh, really profound in that, um, you know, it's showing two different chimp societies that are that reflect humans so well. Like You just see it in their emotions and the manner the actions that they take. Huh. Um, it's a four part series. It's on Netflix called Chimp Empire. And that's uh, we're 
We're at the episode called War, so it's getting really interesting. Well, Jeff and Nick, I want to thank you both for joining me today to talk about Ocean Invaders, and I will have some links to Orange Frame Productions and to the movie and some other stuff on the website at tvjerry.com. Thank you so much again. Awesome. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks very much. I've been talking with Jeff Bodecker, the writer, producer, and director of the documentary Ocean Invaders, and Nicholas Donnelly, the director of photography. It's a documentary about the invasive lionfish and the harm it's doing to our waters. There'll be a link to the film on the webpage for this show at TV Jerry. Coming soon. In theaters. The Flash. After four troubled years, Ezra Miller comes to the screen in the title role, with Michael Keaton showing up as Batman. Elemental. The Pixar Disney folks take us to Element City, where the elements coexist at least to start, The Blackening. This was created by Dwayne Perkins, who worked on Brooklyn 99, about seven black friends in a cabin with a serial killer and lots of racial satire. We might as well be dead. In this German import, everything seems to be fine for a security officer and her 16-year-old daughter until the dog disappears. TV and streaming. The Full Monty on Hulu. This follows the original stripper friends through harder times 25 years later. Extraction 2 on Netflix. This sequel teams Chris Hemsworth with the Russo brothers to extract a family from a prison in Georgia, the country. Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus launches season 2. Project Runway on Bravo starts a new season. The Villains of Valley View on Disney, a family of supervillains, tries to find normalcy in a Texas town. Black Mirror returns to Netflix for a sixth season. Next week, meet a couple who made a movie with virtually no previous experience. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. See you next week. For more Sister, including literally thousands Thousands of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.